You can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. This week we're going to continue the Bond theme with a recording of a lecture that Keith gave at City Lit last year uh, to correspond with the release of Spectre. The lecture is actually all about the history of Spectre and Blofeld within the James Bond films. Now he uses clips in his talk which uh, for obvious reasons I can't include but I have included the intros to them. So uh, if you want to sort of uh, find those clips yourself and play them, it's a very, very interesting talk and uh, it's well worth a listen. So just uh, sit back and relax and uh, listen to Keith give his lecture about Blowfield and Spectre. Keith, Hi. I met at the BFI when I was teaching a course on Hitchcock and he was going to do the presentation yeah, hi. Um, yeah, for, thank you, John, for uh, asking me to come in and talk about this. Um, I'm absolutely a student of John's from previous courses. We've done some stuff on Hitchcock and Scorsese and various other things, but I'm kind of a lifelong fan of the James Bond uh, film series. And uh, I also uh, yeah, make, I went to film school and I, you know, tried a career as a film director, which I'm still waiting for it to take off, but there you go. So what we're going to look at today, um, when I originally talked to John about this, he said a lot of this course is based around Spectre, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, now, first of all, uh, has, has everybody seen the film, the new film, Daniel Craig's? Good. Good. No? Oh, shit. Okay. Because... Yeah, there are going to be a few spoilers, so apologies in advance for that. Um, but the, the whole point of this presentation, what we're going to talk about, is why Spectre and Blofeld were absent from the Bond movies for, for over 50 years. And there's a little known history into the, the way Bond came onto the big screen. And it's interesting, you've just watched that. Uh, Eon, Everything or Nothing documentary about it. Um, a lot of, it's funny, I've done, I've, as I said, I've been a fan all my life and I'm interested in the production side as well as the films themselves. And the more you dig into this, it seems that there is quite a history there. And it's a history that was, um, in many respects, in legal battles for over, uh, well, more than 60 years, in fact, in legal battles. And most of the documentaries that you see 
have to get authorized by Eon Productions. So there's certain things that they've kind of withheld and whatever. Um, also, of course, as with everything, creative property and copyright and who owns what is a very, very difficult thing to you know, put a lid on exactly. So I'm gonna go through a few stories that I've learned about this and how it sort of feeds back into what you're seeing with the new Daniel Craig film. So first of all, Spectre, obviously in the new film, Spectre is a code name for, I guess, what sort of wrecked on what was quantum in Quantum of Solace, yeah? And, and there's a reason they couldn't use SPECTRE for a while. But originally, SPECTRE was actually an acronym. So as you can see there, Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. Very, very 50s, 60s, Cold War um, type title. But, uh, but that's where it originally comes from. And this all sort of dates back to the, the 1950s. And obviously, Ian Fleming had created Casino Royale, the first novel, in 1953. And by the time he'd got to the um, late 50s, we're talking 58, 59 here, he had written seven, seven Bond novels. Um, but he hadn't, he was quite desperate to get film deals in place for these novels because he thought that his character, James Bond, and these stories that he that he was telling would make absolutely fantastic movies. But he wasn't getting any film deals. The only thing that he'd managed to get at that point was a television deal with ABC to make a rather boring and not particularly good version of Casino Royale with an American called Barry Nelson playing the role of James Bond. And that was about all there was in terms of other media beyond the, uh, the novels themselves. And what happened was, um, in the late 50s, uh, Ian Fleming was introduced to Kevin McClory. Now, Kevin, his background was he was a deadly opposite to Fleming. He was very much a working class guy. Um, he, he hadn't you know, grown up in a fairly poor background, but he'd managed to get himself into the film industry. He was quite a pushy, bolshy sort of character and had managed to... Uh, work as, as a, a boom operator and a runner and a first assistant director. And he'd managed to work his way up into the industry to the point where he actually directed a film uh, called The Boy on the Bridge, okay? And the producer of that film was good friends with Ian Fleming. So he got them talking and he said, I think Fle Fleming really wants to make these Bond novels into films and I think they'd make great movies. So basically, he told Kevin McClory to go and read the, the half a dozen novels that were already out by that point. And McClory read them, and he felt that even though James Bond himself was an interesting character and the whole idea of the British Secret Service and going on these missions and having sophistication and all that, he really liked. But he didn't actually feel the stories themselves were very cinematic. He felt they were quite verbose. They were very wordy, everything was written from the point of view of, of the first person, so it was all in Bond's head. And um, he felt that they wouldn't be particularly uh, cinematic spectacle. They wouldn't really make that. Um, so he got together with a, a script screenwriter called Jack Whittingham, and they met with Connery several times. And basically, uh, sorry, they met with Fleming, sorry, several times. Ooh. Freudian slip there. Uh, they met with Fleming several times, and basically, I think from, from the stories I've heard, 
they, they all used to like to get drunk and smoke and probably have a few vodka martinis and things of that nature and, and start developing story ideas and, and talking about how they might be able to adapt James Bond for the big screen, okay? And it's, it's quite interesting because when you actually look at the films that followed, they seldom do they, they take the title, they take one or two character names, but in terms of plot, Apart from a very, very loose synopsis or whatever, they, when you think about it, don't really follow the novels, if any of you have read the novels and since compared them to the film. So, you, you know, I, I'm thinking this part of the story, you know, all of this is, is alleged hearsay and whatever, but this part of the story sounds like it might, be, might actually be true. So what happened is they, in, they began writing a, the first Bond screenplay. They had this idea... Basically, Kevin McClory had always had this idea about atomic bombs being hid in the Bahamas. He, this was an idea that he had that he thought would make an interesting story somehow and how we could possibly weave the James Bond character into that um, environment. Um, so what they did is Fleming actually was the person that began writing the very first screenplay for James Bond in 1959, okay? And they called it at the time, James Bond of the Secret Service. Didn't know what title it was gonna be. And apparently, again, Kevin McClory would look at what Fleming had written, and it was very wordy, it was very expositional, there wasn't a lot of on-screen spectacle and action. And, and indeed, you know, writing, screenwriting is a very different art and skill set to, to writing novels very different you know you have to you're writing visually as opposed to you know emotionally or or um you, you know inside somebody's head so um hence why he got Whittingham involved to actually develop and improve on this story now the argument is and the argument that went on for a legal battle for half a deck um half a century right was was this what became the template for the Bond movies that followed, okay? So we enter the 1960s, and Fleming had got really bored of trying to write the screenplay and develop the film with these guys. He, was, he found it really tiresome. You know, they were trying to get deals. Every single studio had turned them down. Um, Kevin McClory was asking for $3 million, which was a lot of money at the time, when you think Dr. No was made for one million. Yeah, he was asking for three times that to make this because they had to do all of this underwater filming and they had to build elaborate sets and things of that nature. And what had happened is while this was going on, the film that he'd released, which was called uh, The Boy on the Bridge, had tanked big time, okay? It had not made any of the money back. Uh, it got poor reviews. And at this point, um, Fleming started to question whether or not Kevin McClory was the right guy to produce and direct this film, because the idea was he wanted to direct it also. And he started sort of saying this to Jack Whittingham, I'm not sure this is the right guy. And apparently uh, he saw, while he was on a, on a journey, on a plane journey somewhere, he, he saw Hitchcock's uh, North by Northwest. And when Fleming saw that, he thought, this is what a James Bond movie should look like. And many have argued, we've discussed this, that when you look at North by Northwest, it is kind of like 
a bit of a Bond movie, actually, in many respects. So Ian Fleming was trying to get Alfred Hitchcock to direct the first Bond movie. And Alfred Hitchcock said that he would do it providing he could use Cary Grant as James Bond. And Ian Fleming said he had no problem with that whatsoever, providing uh, Cary Grant could do a convincing British accent. Okay, And if that was the case, that would be fine. So this was going on. Uh, Kevin McClory sort of found out about this, didn't like it very much. And there was a lot of bickering going on between these chaps. And as a result, the, the, the production kept getting stored and stored and stored. In the meantime, the publishers of Fleming were saying to him, hey, man, when are we going to get the next James Bond novel? What's going on? You know, we, we need another one. We've got, you're in a contract with us. We've got, you know, public demand wanting more Bond. Can you give us something? So... In 1961, the novel Thunderball is published, okay? And Thunderball uses the first mention of Spectre, okay? Before that, it had been a uh, Russian-type uh, organization known as Smirsch, okay? So he releases this novel, uh, and McClory and Jack Whittingham find out that this novel has been released, and they read it, and it's essentially, story-wise, it's essentially what they, as a trio, as a writing team of collaborators, had come up with for this first James Bond screenplay. It had taken many of the names, story ideas, you know, the basic plot, the characters, obviously Spectre, all of these things. So they immediately sued Ian Fleming for damages because they thought that that was their intellectual property. Okay, and of course, you know, this went in and out of court. It was hard to prove. There were certain notes and certain things that had been written down, but it was like, well, who wrote this line and who wrote that line and whose idea was this? And, you know, they were probably all a bit drunk while they were doing it. So, you know, this got quite nasty. In the meantime, in the early 60s, Fleming finally struck a deal with Eon Productions, as you were seeing in that um, a uh, little documentary that we're watching as I came in. Uh, so this was Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. And they struck the deal with them and went into production fairly rapidly. And the first Bond film that was made, as you all know, was Doctor No, because they wanted to make Thunderball, but this, this legal battle was going on. They wanted Thunderball to actually be the first film. But, you know, McClory and Whittingham were saying, no, you can't have that. We own the rights to this. And it was in and out of court. So basically, what they did is they took Dr. No, which they made for $1 million uh, at the time, and they made a few changes. For a start, Spectre, even though it didn't appear till Thunderball in the novels, Spectre is actually the organization that Dr. No works for in, um, in Dr. No, and it replaces Smirsch. The other thing... Uh, that they did was they changed a few other things. At this point, they didn't have the rights to Casino Royale because it was with that television company. And they, they have it that Bond meets Felix Leiter in Doctor No, played by Jack Lord at the time. Um, obviously, this was a smash hit, did really well. So the following year, they go straight into production with From Russia With Love, you know? Another major film, major hit, Connery, a massive star, you know, the formula's working, all right? 
And uh, of course, we all know Goldfinger kind of set the template. However, while all this was going on, the Whittingham, McClory, Fleming were in this massive battle because not only had they done this script, this original script, James Bond of the Secret Service, which became Thunderball, they had also done quite a lot of conceptual arts and production design, all of which apparently looked very similar to stuff Ken Adam had come up with uh, for these films. So they were sort of arguing that, well, really, we, we kind of designed the Bond film template, and these guys have stolen it from us, and Ian Fleming has done the dirty on us and gone direct with these guys. So this goes on and on and on and on. Sadly, in 1964, Ian Fleming dies. So in 1965, they, they've had these, these you know, uh, very successful first three films, and they now want to make Thunderball, okay? But, you know, there's still this thing that Kevin McClory owns the rights to it. So what they do is they strike a deal with Kevin McClory to have that script and have him credited as sole producer. So unlike the other films that say, produced by Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, Thunderball actually says, Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman present Thunderball, and the sole producing credit goes to this Kevin McClory guy, as well as Jack Whittingham and him getting credited above Ian Fleming for the story. Okay, so that's the first clip. What I want to do is I want to play the pre-credit sequence of Thunderball, which is obviously by now the Bond tone has been set, you know, by those other three films. And you'll see the beginning credits where you'll see it says Eon Productions pre present or Schultzman and, and, and uh, Broccoli present. And you'll see Kevin McClory's producing credit. So Thunderball, um, at the time, uh, the most expensive Bond film to date uh, at that time because obviously it had to come up with all these under, marvelous underwater scenes. Um, it was the first Bond film to be filmed in uh, uh, Cinemascope. Before that, they'd all just been normal widescreen, but this was 235 to 1 Cinemascope. Um, and in this, a lot of people were surprised by this until... Uh, 2012, when um, Skyfall came out, this was still the most successful Bond film in the entire series. The only film that's actually broken that is uh, Skyfall, and well, who knows? Maybe Spectre will. But um, so, so you know, th this was a big deal. This film was a big deal, and uh, as I said, um, Albert R. Broccoli and Harry, Harry Schultzman, they were. They were kind of nervous because um, they already knew that, uh, even though it was a spoof, that a that a um, independent production of uh, Casino Royale was on the way. It came out in 1967. It was a spoof version because it, you know they didn't own the rights to that. And you know, knowing that McClory was going to uh, try and get this film made, they they basically panicked and you know, did a deal with him. But as I said, it turned out to be a fantastic film. All right? Now, the other thing that was missing for a long time was Ernst Stavro Blofeld, the character, the, the, the leader of Spectre organization. And he actually first shows up in From Russia With Love, 
but at the time you don't actually see his face. All you actually see is uh, this Persian cat on his lap, which again is something that the films added. It wasn't in the, the novels. And you see him stroking the cat and hear his voice. And obviously there's a, a spectre ring, which is a lot more sort of ornamental than the ones we had in the, uh, in, in the new film. But uh, in, the, in the following film, um, You Only Live Twice, is the first time that Bond comes face to face with this villain. And it was played by, as you can see in this picture, Donald Pleasance played the first Ernst Stavro Blofeld, who they, they meet. And as you can see, he's got that scar, he's got the bald head, you know, very, very distinct look. However, interestingly enough, two years later, when they make, uh, with a different Bond, they make Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Telly Savalas takes over the role. And I must admit, back then, the, the sort of 60s Bond films just didn't seem to really care about continuity. They, they were forever switching actors. Obviously, in this case, you even had a different actor playing James Bond in the form of George Lazenby. And you had these guys, and they'd, they'd obviously met in the previous film, played by different actors, but in this film, they kind of meet again. And, you know, they don't know each other, which is kind of odd. But obviously a very important film because, again, spoiler alert, folks, but in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Bond actually falls in love for once and marries uh, Tracy, who becomes Tracy Bond. And this guy and, and, his, and his henchman, or henchwoman in this case, actually kills her. So at the end of the uh, credits for um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, his wife is dead. He says, we've got all the time in the world, which leads to the lovely Louis Armstrong song. And then they managed to get Connery back. He didn't really want to come back because he'd kind of, Connery had kind of fallen out with the uh, Broccoli's and Schultzman by this point. But they managed to get him back for a ridiculous amount of money that he donated to charity. Because obviously, even though the film was successful on a Majesty's Secret Service, the bond itself, um, George Lazenby, was, was not and had fallen out with the producers quite badly. So in the next film, Diamonds Are Forever, once again, Blofeld looks different, this time played by Charles Gray, who had interestingly played a character called Henderson in You Only Live Twice. So again, they like to not only change the actors, but use actors in different roles. And in this one, um, you know, Connery comes after, or Bond comes after for revenge. And uh, Ernst Stavro Blofeld and the cat and everything is in this film too. And, and just to get the doctor no, uh, Joseph Wiseman played Dr. No. He did, yeah. And then, oh, but Anthony Dawson was... Oh, was the man you don't see stroking the cat? Stroking the yeah. cat. But yeah. he's the one found killed in Dr. No, and now he's Blofeld in uh, From Russia with Love. Exactly. So they, 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 like to, uh, they like to mess with all that back in the 60s. Now, the big problem with, with, with Blofeld, okay, in terms of there were legal reasons why he couldn't be used, as I was explaining, but the other trouble was this guy. <laughs> By the late 90s, uh, when Austin Powers came out, suddenly, you know, the whole Bond thing was parodied. And, you know, I know there's a whole generation of people that when they see You Only Live Twice, think, oh, that's Dr. Evil, you know, which is, uh, which I think is quite scary. But, uh, but yes, it did open up for the, uh, 
the, the parodies. And obviously in this case, he had the cat that didn't have any fur, things of that nature. So we entered the 70s and basically, uh, would you believe it, Kevin McClory's made a, a, an absolutely a massive amount of money off of Thunderball. The guy's a millionaire. Okay, he owns homes in the Bahamas. You, you know, he's doing really well for himself. With that millionaire, he could have gone off and made other films, you know, but I don't know why he did. He was still very bitter that, that, that uh, Eon Productions had this Bond franchise that he felt was his, okay? Even though they'd worked with him on that one film, he still wanted more of a cut of their other successful films. And again, you know, since Thunderball, they'd had another three hugely successful films by this point. So as we'd enter the 70s, um, he, again, was taking them to court regularly, and it was it was basically agreed that they couldn't use the name Blofeld or Spectre in any future movies because that was owned by Kevin McClory. By this point, sadly, uh, Jack Whittingham had actually died um, in this. So Jack Whittingham, he kind of, uh, from what I've read, he kind of got a bit screwed over by Kevin McClory as well. Kevin McClory, you know, didn't seem to care, even though Jack Whittingham was kind of the, 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 the creative force and Kevin McClory was more the driving force. Um, he, he cut um, Jack Whittingham out of loads of deals, allegedly. This is just what I've read. Who knows if it's true? So The Spy Who Loved Me, which came out in 1977, which again, in some respects, was a little bit of a retake on Bond because obviously this is a whole other story, but Schult, um, Broccoli ends up buying Schultzman out because of financial problems. So The Spy Who Loved Me is the first Eon production that is solely an Albert R. Broccoli and not Harry Schultzman production. But The Spy Who Loved Me novel did feature Spectre and Blofeld, but they had to completely rewrite it and, and redo it for the, uh, for the movie. And Kevin McClory at this time was, was, had, still had his Thunderball script which he'd adapted and updated, and it was now named Warhead. And he wanted, um, he was approaching Sean Connery to see if he would come back and do the role of Bond once again. So in, so the spy will not be in the novel, they can mention Spectre, but not in the film. That's correct, yeah. So how is it, how is it in It, it was to do, I mean, it was very complicated yeah. because obviously Con, um, Fleming had written a lot of the, the actual novels before Thunderball, but because they developed that for the actual, because back in the original novels, it wasn't Spectre, it was Smirsh. The first time Spectre was mentioned was in Thunderball, which as far as Kevin McClory was concerned, that was his creation, not Ian Fleming's. So, you, you know, and again, all of this stuff, it's such a gray area. You know, this creativity, when you work in a collaboration, unless you're having absolutely everything you say recorded, you know, who really knows who did what and who brought what to the project? That's why these things are very difficult. And of course, you know, there are stories that Kevin McClory had a bit of a chip on his shoulder because obviously Ian Fleming was was kind of an upper class toff, as it were, and he was this hard working class 
guy that had come from a tough background and you know there, there's 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 things that Whittingham and Fleming sort of looked down and didn't think that McClory was particularly intelligent and things of that nature um, but you know on the flip side McClory was was massively responsible for getting things moving and you know driving it ahead and you know, you know effectively helping to get Thunderball made but as far as he was concerned you know, the Eon franchise, part of that belonged to him. So why did McCoy not um, the earlier novels like Casino Royale or, or um, The Mushroom Yeah, he just oh. felt, well, by that time, obviously the deal had then been done with Eon, but originally, before all of that, he just felt that they just weren't cinematic. Oh, I see. He, he read them and thought the character was interesting, but the actual stories and and the way they'd been written were not great for cinema and it is you know it's funny actually because since i found that out when you go back and look you do realize that the adaptations that they've done for the screen are massively different to the books you know i guess the one that got closest was the reboot with casino royale but even that they added you know tons of action that wasn't <coughs> present in the novel so but I want to show you another clip now, actually. Um, is it already yeah, queued up? This is from For Your Eyes Only, which came out in 1981. And this is an official Eon production where they kind of kill off the Blofeld character without actually mentioning that it's Blofeld. In fact, in the credits, it's credited as wheelchair villain because they couldn't use the Blofeld name. Yeah. So this is a little bit of Roger Moore. I'm trying to get some different bonds in for this. So kind of um, uh, Eon's way of, I guess, dealing with this legal problem was to actually kind of kill that character off. So, uh, um, but I mean, that was almost a parody in itself. Um, so, you, you know, they kind of killed off the Blofeld character. As I said, they didn't actually, he never goes by name in that. Uh, you kind of get the idea with the whole Dr. Evil thing, right? Um, and uh, some interesting things in that as well. It's the, the first sort of link of the Roger Moore films back to what had come before, because obviously he's visiting his, his wife's grave there from um, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which is quite interesting. In fact, um, something that, that I always kind of welcomed when they did the reboot with Daniel Craig in 2006 was the fact that, you, you know, even though they all looked different and handled the roles differently, you know, we as the audience were always supposed to believe that, um, you know, this was, this was the same character in, in all these films. And, uh, you know, had that timeline been reality, he would have been, what, in his 70s by the time Pierce Brosnan took over. So, um, so but, but on, the, on the subject of an older Bond, um, in, 19, in the early 80s, we got into this stage of the Battle of the Bonds, and that was Kevin McClory was still biting at the bit to try and, you know, get Thunderball remade and claim, you know, more money from his Bond creation, um, as he put it. And there was a, he, he approached a producer, or rather a lawyer, should I say, called Jack Schwartzman, who... Um, really wanted to be a film producer. He had ties into film production in the fact that he was married to Talia Shire, who is actually Francis Ford Coppola's sister, 
and um, appeared as Adrian in the Rocky series of films. And basically, he used some of his film contacts to try and get some money together to get Kevin McClory to be able to remake a new Bond film. And this Bond film was supposed to deal with an older Bond. What would happen if 007 came back to the Secret Service, you know, years after he'd left it, you know, and what would unfold there? So he approached Sean Connery, and they offered Sean Connery a crazy amount of money to reprise his role as Bond one more time. Okay, and this script was the script that was called Warhead. However, it was actually, or rumor has it, that the title ended up coming from uh, Sean Connery's wife, who commented that he said that he, after Diamonds Are Forever, he swore he would never play Bond again. So she came up with Never Say Never Again. And that's what this film uh, became. So it was produced by Jack Schwartzman. It was made in 1982 for a 1983 release. Quite an impressive cast and crew involved in this film. It was essentially a low budget, or fairly low, medium budget, independent film. It was independent from the studios. It was going to be released through Warner Brothers. Uh, it had nothing to do with the established Eon Productions. And as I said, Kevin McClory was going to get this made and make more, even more money off of it uh, with Jack Schwartzman producing. However, Eon Productions had something to say about this, obviously. So Jack Schwartzman spent most of the time in court with the lawyers from Eon Productions trying to come to settlements and agreements of what they could and what they couldn't do with this material. And whereas they were going to do this story about an aging Bond, which they kept elements of, essentially the only thing that they were legally allowed to do with this was use elements, characters, story points, etc., from the novel Thunderball. Not the film Thunderball, the novel Thunderball. Okay? So um, this meant that they had certain production limitations and restrictions as to what they could do. Uh, Connery also wanted to have sign-off on this and, and, and sign-off on the production. And Sean Connery was, in fact, the one that made a lot of things happen. And they did a lot of smart stuff for this. The first smart move they did is they hired, as the director of this, Irving Kirshner. Now, Irving Kirshner two years beforehand, had directed the second Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back, with George Lucas. So Irving Kirshner, seasoned director, had a massive hit with that film, you know, felt it would be good to bring a, a hero back to the screen or an actor playing an old hero back to the screen. So they got Irving Kirshner on board as director. The other thing they did is they approached much of the crew from Raiders of the Lost Ark that had been filmed over here at Elstree Studios the year previous. So they got the stunt coordinators, much of the stunt team, the director of photography, a guy called Douglas Slocum, and the unit production manager and first assistant director, a guy by the name of Dave Tomlin. 
Now, Dave Tomlin takes very little credit, but Dave Tomlin was responsible in many respects for getting this film made because Jack Schwartzman, who was the official producer, was spending most of his time in court with the Eon guys, yeah? Now, they were given certain limitations to what they could and couldn't do, all right, to make this Bond movie. So what we have, we have familiar characters that have changed slightly. So this, this, is, this is Domino as she appeared in Thunderball, where she was named uh, Domino Duval, yeah? Beautiful, one of my favorite Bond girls, I have to say. In the remake, she is played by Kim Basinger in one of her earliest roles. In fact, I believe this was her first movie role. Before this, she had only done television. Okay, and they had to change the name, in fact, back to what the name was in the original novel, because they changed it for Thunderball based on the casting of the actress. All right, so but you've got analogues of, of many of these characters. The villain in Thunderball, Emilio Largo, okay? Uh, you know, very much, very much modeled after a, a pirate, you know, with his eye patch and his, but at the same time, you know, agent number two, inspector. So um, this guy, but they decided to take maybe a slightly more realistic approach in the 80s and cast this guy as Maximilian Largo. Again, a subtle name change, but essentially, same character, very similar plot. And another one that changed, this was the femme fatale in uh, Thunderball, Fiona Volp, which was played in Never Say Never Again by Barbara Carrera playing Fatima Blush. And this is an actual, again, a Fleming name that they went back to for the femme fatale, Fatima Blush. Now, we also had Max von Sydow, um, you know, from Exorcist fame and fresh off the back of Flash Gordon playing Ming the Merciless the year before, um, becoming the first Blofeld in 12 years, you know, since 1971 in Diamonds Are Forever. So um, we get a new Blofeld in this. Now, interestingly, which I, I, which I did find, he does have the Persian cat, which I, I thought was quite interesting because they were under certain restrictions about what they could do, you know, book versus film and what they'd already established in film. And the Persian cat, was actually something that was established in the Eon series right back from, from Russia with Love. So I find it interesting that they allowed the Persian cat to get in there. They didn't but, sue um, because of the cat. No, they didn't sue because of the cat. But there were things that they couldn't do, all right? First of all, they weren't allowed to use the gun barrel logo or have a pre-credit sequence. That wasn't allowed. That was an absolute no-go. The other thing was they weren't allowed to have a Morris Binder type title sequence with, you know, naked silhouettes and bright colors and things of that nature. They also weren't allowed to use the Monty Norman uh, theme that was uh, arranged and made famous by John Barry in the score at all. So you couldn't have a lot of these Bond elements that take place outside of the actual fiction, they, they weren't allowed to use. And apparently they did approach John Barry to do the score and John Barry, out of respect and, and loyalty to Eon Productions and all the work Cubby Broccoli had given him over the years, did decline on that. And then they were going to use James Horner, and for some reason that didn't happen. 
So they ended up using uh, Michelle Legrand. And I have to say that the soundtrack of Never Say Never Again is, is not one of its strongest points, although it does have some it does have some good elements, although you can tell they did not have the budget of an official Bond film. Now, this was a bit unprecedented because this came out in direct... Oh, and I'm sorry, I've cut Roger Moore's head off, I've realised there, which was not intentional. But this came out in direct competition the very same year as an official E.ON production with Octopussy. Now, it's me. I think I think that's my slide. Um, with Octopussy, which uh, was an official James Bond film, and it came out the exact same year, same summer, etc. as Never Say Never Again. So you had these Bonds battling one another. You had Sean Connery that many felt was the original and the best Bond and better than his successor. But then you had Roger Moore that had been doing this now since 1972, 73? Live and let die, 73. So was well established and had an established audience there. Obviously with this, they could use the Bond theme, they could use the gun barrel, they could use all that stuff. We'd never say never again, they couldn't use those points. Now both films were very successful. Ultimately, Octopussy won. The, the official Bond film won the Battle of the Bonds that year. However, Never Say Never Again at that point became the most successful independent film in history up to that time. And I remember I always, back when I had my first Bond collection on VHS, remember that? Um, I had all the films up to then License to Kill. So all of them up to the end of the Timothy Dalton films. And I always had Never Say Never Again in the rack at the end because I liked it. Because even though it was essentially the same story as Thunderbore, I kind of liked the fact it dealt with a slightly older Bond. And uh, obviously, Sean Connery and Roger Moore were essentially the same age at that point. And I have to say, Sean Connery, for me, in this film looks better than he did 12 years earlier in Diamonds Are Forever, where I thought he looked fat and bored and like he really didn't want to be there. Yeah. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, in this film they had uh, Edward Fox played M, uh, and he played it as if he was a sort of successor to Bernard Lee, who had died anyway by that point um, and was going to be replaced by Brown, I've forgotten his first name, but the guy who went on to play M after Bernard Lee. His name I can't remember. Yeah, anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, so they, 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 they couldn't use that. They had a different Money Penny. I think her name was Pamela Salem was playing Money Penny and Never Say Never Again and not Lois Maxwell. And Q, they had a... They had a different sort of character. In fact, I'm going to show you that scene if, if we get time. Um, from Q Branch called Elgon, who, uh, who, who played. It's quite an interesting scene, that. So, in fact, we'll do that next. So let's play. What I'm going to do, I want to play the, the opening sequence to Never Say Never Again. Basically, it's kind of a combination of the pre-credit sequence and the title sequence in one because they weren't allowed to... Uh, <laughs> yeah, and they've also got, I mean, Rowan Atkinson, uh, hot off the back of Black Adder, makes a uh, appearance in this film as a character called, Ni the, the innuendo name, Nigel Smallforcet. But uh, yes, so it's got some, 
So anyway, I'm just going to wrap this up now because I know it's near time to go. So into the 1990s, um, obviously Eon relaunched with GoldenEye uh, with Pierce Brosnan. But, uh, you know, Kevin McClory has still got this bit between his teeth. He's now got a script called Warhead 2000, which again is an updated version of Thunderball that he approaches Timothy Dalton to try and get Dalton back in the, in the role. That didn't happen. And at the same time, a, um, a, a writer called Robert Sellers had, had written a book about this, published a book called The Battle for Bond, which was actually banned by the Ian Fleming estate and didn't come out until a couple of years ago. And that's where I'm getting a lot of this information from. So obviously the 2000s, um, you know, the Eon get the rights to Casino Royale and do, you know, the reboot with Daniel Craig. Uh, obviously, they mention Quantum in the Quantum of Solace, because at this point, they still don't have the rights to Blofeld and uh, Spectre. But in 2013, you know, um, some decade after Kevin McClory had died, uh, they get the rights to Spectre, and obviously, the rest is history. That's why we're here today talking about that. Now, sorry, a shameless plug. Um, if, you do, if you have enjoyed listening to me waffle on, uh, I actually am part of a podcast called Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with, with me and another independent filmmaker. And basically, we're going through the A to Z of directors at the moment, and we each pick a film of theirs that we love and a film of theirs that we hate, and we discuss it on a podcast. So uh, um, Movie Heaven, Movie Hell, if you Google it or put it into iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, that'll come up. What hmm? director are you doing? We've just done, Michael Mann was the last one, and the one that comes out on this Thursday is Christopher Nolan. So we're up to N. Uh, also, if you think, well, who, who the hell is this guy? And he keeps talking about films like he knows about filmmaking. Well, I'm not saying I do, but if you go to YouTube and you put in British Isles, as in my surname, um, you will see six short films that I made with no time and no budget off my own back that I wrote, produced, and directed. Please feel free to have a watch, share, comment, whatever you need. It's, you know, I, I've been told I'm not good enough at plugging my own stuff. So, and that's it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. <laughs> We've got about four minutes for any questions. Oh, yeah. I love questions. So that's cool. Q&A, and I'll, I'll do the this for you. But how about questions to I don't know, as I said, I don't know whether this is any of this is news to you or not, but um, I, when, as I was researching it, I found that it was a bit like a, an onion, and as you started peeling away, there were more and more levels. And of course, I respect Ian Fleming, I respect the Eon films, but it's also quite interesting that, you know, <laughs> it, James Bond that we know and love might not just be down to them, it might have been down to other people as well. And, yeah. Robert, Sellers. Robert Sellers, yes. It's called Battle for Bond. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm not on any royalties for that, but it is available on uh, uh, Amazon as a second edition. Now, apparently the first edition, which costs hundreds of pounds to get, but that had the production... Uh, concept drawings in it that look very similar to what Ken Adams ended up producing, but those were completely banned and vetoed, so they're no longer in that book. Did that sell it S E double L? Yeah, as in Peter. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was um, McCowan, yes, yes, Alec McCowan. 
Um, yeah. Oh, that song's horrible. Yeah. No, I mean, no, it's it's, it's very controversial uh, that because you know the actual visuals are quite good with Connery kicking ass and you know. <laughs> Doing this training exercise and infiltrating this place, but yeah, the music kind but of. You know, it's like when a when a thing a franchise goes Tarzan used to be MGM when he swiped at the trees and it looks so tremendous, and then he went over to RKO, right? And they couldn't take the call. The Tarzan call couldn't go with them. Ah, right. He was okay. putting on weight, and it, and it all just looked. You know, he lost the team. It just didn't look the same. Yeah. Yeah. It depends on some. Of yeah, it's reminded very much of almost like an American. Team. Yeah. 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 It wasn't particularly filmic. Yeah. No. I mean, the, the, when you when you watch the if you watch the whole film, I'm not suggesting you do, but if you do, the the, the showdown at the end, they couldn't do the underwater showdown like they did in Thunderball. That's one of the things they weren't allowed to do. So what they are instead, they're in a temple, and they're having a shootout in this temple, but. It's really, I mean, it looks like, you know, it looks like an old disused set from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but it's really brightly lit. And apparently Kirshner says that he'd lost interest by that point because this was a really problematic production. And you can sort of tell, I mean, it looks, the climax, the, for me, would never say never again. I think the first three quarters of the film is actually pretty decent, but the the, the, the final quarter kind of lets it down somewhat. The, the climax is a bit meh. I thought you know. like most Bond films, I get bored with the, the end, the big end and the volcano or whatever. Yeah. I like the build up to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, does the Connery carry it? I mean, it's not carry it. I think so. Yeah, I think I think he's more convincing in this than he is in Diamonds Are Forever for me personally. I think he's much. But I mean that the point is it's supposed to be an aging character by that point which is one of the things I like about it and there's some nice touches like at the beginning he arrives in a Bentley so that's a nice little wink back to the novels obviously the Bentley only appeared briefly in From Russia with Love and is mentioned in Goldfinger before he gets the wonderful Aston Martin but uh, uh, you, you know so it's got some nice touches but uh, it's not yeah it's not. how do you like Spectre? you see I really like it I, I know this causes a lot of debate I mean my, my view on this with, with Eon Productions is they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. And what I mean by that is I really loved Casino Royale, but I know a lot of hardcore Bond fans that say, yeah, but it wasn't really, you know, you didn't, you didn't have Q and you didn't have Money Penny and he, he wasn't shagging loads of women and, and, you know, he didn't have gadgets and there was no Bond luck and, you know, all this sort of thing. Well, they've gone and put all of those elements into Spectre. I mean, I think it ticks every box. And now people are saying, oh, it's a bit silly and it's a bit make-believe. And, and you're like, well, you know, you, it's a balance, isn't it? I, I like the way they've tied the, the story ends in. I like the way they've brought Blofeld back. Uh, I like this Scar as kind of a nod to, to, to the Pleasance uh, character. So yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was really good. For, for me, it's my favorite since Casino Royale. Because uh, I have issues with both Quantum, Solace, and Skyfall. Do you with Skyfall? I love, uh, I love Casino Royale, but I love Skyfall. But I, I love to me. What, Sky, what are your issues? My issues with Skyfall, well, first of all, I'm, I'm 
utterly pissed off that the gun barrel wasn't at the beginning. They stuck it at the end. That so pissed me off beyond belief. I was, I was, I, I was sat through the first 20 of the minutes of the film fuming because of that. I'm like, Mendez, you twat. What have you, uh, you know, so I didn't like that. And, and the fact, what, what, what I did like was obviously in Casino Royale, they completely divorced themselves from all the other Bond films. And I kind of get why they did it, because it was the 50th anniversary. But bringing the Goldfinger Aston Martin into it was wrong, in my opinion. They shouldn't have done that. They, they divorced themselves from that. And I, I just thought it was winky, and it took me out of the film. And it was not, con you know, it was supposed to be inconspicuous, which it wasn't. He had that stupid gag with them that he was going to, send her out the ejector seat, and then they use the machine guns and stuff at the end, and I was just like, and of course the whole ending, that whole A-team, Home Alone, M. Guyver ending, just really annoyed the hell out of me. So now I had, lo I had loads of issues with uh, Skyfall, and also uh, Thomas Newman didn't get the soundtrack right, which he did in Inspector, I feel. But yeah, me being, every, you know, everybody's got their own opinions on that, but. Uh, yeah, you I'm a bit of a nerd. Do you think Inspector might be a little bit too winky, like in the credits and that? It seems to be knowledgeable about the film. Yeah. No, not really. No. I kind of liked no, it. No, in no, fact, in, in fact, I, I liked, you know, I liked the little nods, like the fight on the train, you know, with the henchman that's sort of a cross between Jaws and Odd Job. And, and, you know, that sort of reference to both from Russia with Love and the Spy Love Me, you know, on the train yeah. sort of thing. I thought, I thought that was great, you know. I loved, I loved all that stuff. Do you like, like, um, like uh, Smiley as well or not? I think, uh, I think Chris James Bond is, is a character, isn't he? Whereas someone like Smiley is more, more like a real thing. Yeah, I find the Le stuff, you know, I, I kind of like the spectacle of the yeah, Bond films, yeah. to be honest. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, cool, okay. No, thank you, it's been real fun. So, any excuse to talk about Bond is good with me. So.